Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alien Crash Site. Today is February 18th, and it's a very big day in space science. As you may or may not know, the Perseverance rover is scheduled to land on Mars this afternoon. At the time of this recording, that hasn't yet happened. So while the interview might be a bit optimistic, and I really, really expect that this will be an optimistic landing, there is a chance once I hit publish in a few hours that things don't go uh, as planned. It's always a risk with these kinds of missions, but I'm an optimist, as you, my audience, probably know by now, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that this remains a celebratory episode. This week, for this very special Mars Rover Landing Day episode, we have Dr. Nina Lanza on the pod. Nina has been on the ChemCam team on the Curiosity rover working at Los Alamos National Labs, and she is also about to deliver a new and improved SuperCam on the Perseverance rover to do further analysis of the geological surface of Mars. Now, Nina has been part of the interplanetary family for a bit. She was a panelist in our first interplanetary festival for a variety of reasons. Obviously, one, we wanted to hear about her work shooting lasers at Mars, And two, because she did a stint, I think, for about six weeks living on an ice sheet in Antarctica collecting meteorites for NASA. We discuss both of these things during this episode, in addition to her alien crash site object, which, frankly, I'm surprised no one has selected yet. I want to take a quick moment to dedicate this show to a friend of mine, Liam, who has recently developed a Mars obsession and is tracking the delivery of the rover. I hope you enjoy this. I hope that we have nothing but good news to celebrate in the coming hours. And I look forward to the next several years getting downlink information from the new rover and continued information from the Curiosity rover. Their continued pursuit of signs of life on Mars is a totally fascinating project and mission. And I really, really hope in the next few years we get a totally tantalizing biosignature. So with that, I think we should probably take off. My name is Caitlin McShay. This is the Santa Fe Institute's Alien Crash Site podcast. I encourage you to bring your helmets because we are both entering an Earth alien crash site and also landing on another planet today. It's a it's a big one, so be careful. Nina, how are you doing? I'm great, Caitlin. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, I'm so glad that you decided to join us, especially knowing how busy you've been. It's been a little bit crazy. Um, I think I might be maxing out on my bandwidth, but um, it's always good to test your limits, right? That's right. How much can you possibly do? Um, For our audience, would you take a moment to explain why it is that you're so hard to schedule? Sure. Well, (laughs) um, I work on an instrument that is currently flying to Mars as part of the Perseverance NASA Mars rover, which will arrive on February 18th. So that's really soon to now when we're talking. And needless to say, it's kind of pandemonium over here. Uh, We also have another instrument that's currently on Mars on the Curiosity rover. So we can't forget about our first child as our second child is about to be born. First child might be a bit jealous, but second child has, you know, a little more to offer perhaps. I mean, I, I would say that it's like different, equally awesome, different, 
different things that they offer, but um, certainly our baby needs some attention right now. That's right. Uh, just because the landing is a scary and dangerous time. Right, right. You hope the stork is gentle. Yes. <laughs> Place our rover baby <laughs> on the surface of Mars very gently. I should say for our audience, you and I go back a couple of years because we brought you to Interplanetary every chance we could until a pandemic prevented the festival. And this was because you have uh, great insights on things like our space futures, one, because of a voluntary stint in Antarctica, which still blows my mind, and two, because of the work that you do with the rover on Mars, which was the ChemCam. But now the Perseverance rover has another cam on it. I think it's called SuperCam. It's like the big bad brother. Can you explain what the differences are, what kind of tools you're delivering to Mars this time and what that might grant you as a laser scientist who's curious about the geology of the surface of Mars? Sure, yeah. Can I start with saying what ChemCam is? And then yes, you can please. see what the difference is between, yeah. So ChemCam, which is currently on the Curiosity rover on Mars right now, is actually the head of the rover. So if you if you look at sort of the, the rover um, on the top of the mass is a head with a cyclops eye. For those of you who are watching the video, you can actually see this behind Caitlin. And so what this instrument is, it's uh, the name ChemCam is short for chemistry and camera. So as you might imagine, we take pictures and we also get chemistry. So the chemistry is uh, obtained by a technique called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy or LIBS. And what this does, this is real, it is a laser that shoots at a rock up to 23 feet away from the rover and it vaporizes it. Just a little piece of rock is vaporized. And so this makes a bright light and we can look at that light back on the rover, which we can also see in this video. And we can figure out what the chemical elements making up that rock are without ever touching the rock. So that's the laser component of ChemCam and that's the chemistry. But we can also take an image of the place where we got that chemistry. And so that gives us the geologic context for that material, right? So we can actually say, hey, we shot this little bright toned grain and it's different in composition from the dark tone matrix, for example. So this really provides us some context. So we have this beautiful imager, we have this chemistry information. We can also use our spectrometers, that's what's catching the light in a passive mode. So we can just use the light of the sun as it falls on the surface of Mars and we can look at the reflected light and we can figure out something about the mineralogy. So mineralogy is sort of how elements are arranged, right? Geologists need two things to identify materials. We need chemistry, the elements, and we need mineralogy, how they're arranged. And so ChemCam has a mineralogical capability, um, but it's not something it was designed for. So it's something we've kind of learned how to use, but it's not really the thing that we do the best. The best thing that we do is chemistry. So that's that's ChemCam and it's a great instrument and it's still going. But when we built SuperCam, we decided to add some super capabilities. So we kept the LIBS laser, that rock vaporizing laser to get chemistry. But because mineralogy is such a critical part of our interpretation of the geology, we added another laser-based technique called Raman spectroscopy. So Raman uh, uses a green laser, doesn't vaporize the rocks, but we kind of vibrate the bond so we can figure out mineralogy. So we can zap with the LIBS laser for chemistry and then zap with the Raman laser to get mineralogy. And so we can do both measurements in the same place, which is incredible. I'm really excited about that. And so along with the Raman capability, we can also use the green laser to get what's called time-resolved luminescence. It's just another technique where we can understand trace elements within the mineralogy, right, within the crystal matrices. So that can help us understand 
more about the origin and the formation environments of materials on Mars. We also decided that our imaging capability was really helpful. We weren't sure if it was going to be helpful, but it turns out it's been really critical for interpreting our data. So we added color to our remote microimagers. We can take color close-up images and put all this mineralogical and chemistry data together. We've also expanded the range of our passive spectroscopy. So we can use, again, the light of the sun and a broader wavelength range to get more information about mineralogy as well. And so along with all of that, right? That's a lot of new capabilities, but along with that, we've also added a microphone. So we can actually hear the sounds of Mars, but it's not just hearing the sounds of Mars. The main reason we added it was to hear the sounds of our laser analyses because our rock vaporizing laser makes not quite a pew pew, but it makes a snapping sound. And actually, if we listen to the sound of that snapping, we can understand things about the rock material properties. So we can listen to the sound of the rocks to be able to better understand their compositions as well. So that's all, I suppose, not quite in a nutshell, but that's super cam in a summary. Yeah, that's okay. I don't need the nutshell. We're very excited about all of these <laughs> capabilities and we want to learn about them in detail. I'm curious about the, the snap sound. One, because I, I'm not quite sure I understand, except for like in an echolocation-y type uh, perspective, what you can gain informationally from the sound. But also I think that there being a sound produced might be very like romantic for individuals like me who don't practice science, but absolutely love space. The idea of like tuning in and listening into the actual sound of the surface of these rocks could be really, really cool. Well, so it's not, we're, we're not using it to, to do echolocation, right? We're using it actually to, to understand material properties. And so the way you can think about this is that, so two things, one, um, the LIBS analysis, uh, produces a shock wave. That's where the sound is coming from. Okay. So you're expanding plasma out so quickly, it's moving faster than the speed of sound. It just creates this really sharp wave front. That's what a shock wave is. So it's usually we think of that in terms of an explosion, you right. know, um, this is like a little tiny explosion, really, really small. And so it's, that's why it sounds like a snap to us. But also on Mars, the atmosphere is a totally different composition than it is on earth. So sound behaves differently on Mars than it does on earth. And so that means that, in fact, one of the things I'm doing is I'm doing a lot of experiments. In fact, right now during this week in the worst timing ever, I'm doing some laboratory experiments to better understand how sound propagates in the Mars atmosphere by filling a giant Mars chamber okay. <laughs> you know, with Mars gas and then putting some microphones in there and making sounds to try to understand how sound propagates differently. Um, but that's something that we've never done on Mars. So we'll be able to understand you know, by listening to the way that sound travels, known sounds, we can understand better you know, just the properties of the atmosphere. But what I wanna do is study rocks. And so the rock aspect of this is that we're not entirely sure why this happens, but the shock wave, the nature of the shock wave changes as you change materials. And this may also be because, you know, every time you shoot that laser, you're digging a little deeper into that rock, you're digging mm -hmm. a little hole. And so the way that the plasma can expand changes and then plus how much material is being ablated. There's a lot of things that go into that. And so it turns out that if you listen to the shot by shot sequence, we pulse the laser at three Hertz. So it's like, if you listen to how the sound changes over those shots, you can see differences. And that pattern of differences provides to you information about you know, how hard the rock is, how deep you've penetrated and whether or not you've penetrated through a small layer, like a rock coating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I mean like more broadly, so that's just, you know, that was like nerdy details, but like, I think it's super exciting to add another sense to our 
understanding of the Martian surface, right? We have images, we're gonna get video and now we'll have this audio and that will make it much more visceral. I feel like the reason I got into Mars research to start with was these beautiful images where I felt like I could see myself there and adding sound to that is just gonna make that more viscerally connectable, I think. Oh, absolutely. That's very poetic. It would be nice perhaps if there was a hand or a nose as we like with each new rover, as we get closer and closer, we develop more sentient experience with it, which would be great. Um, (laughs) Can I ask, given that you have this kind of proxy with your Mars chamber and you're testing out what sounds come through with the microphones, does it sound bananas compared to what we would expect from the same kind of lasers shooting up the surface of the earth? It doesn't sound entirely different. It just, it is not the same. It, I would say it's in the uncanny valley of sounds <laughs> where it's like almost right, but it's not quite right. So, so there's several things that you'll notice. First, sounds are way quieter in the Martian atmosphere. It just you have to be a lot closer to something to hear it. And that's because the atmosphere is less dense, takes more energy to actually make the same wave front. So, so things are quiet in a weird way, but because the atmosphere is also entirely made of carbon dioxide, pretty much, Sound doesn't propagate through carbon dioxide in the same way as it does through the earth atmospheric mix. And so lower sounds are actually louder than higher pitch sounds. And so if you are, if you were to imagine speaking without a helmet on the surface of Mars, a terrible idea, do not do this. But if you were to do that, you know, our voices naturally are modulated. They go up and down. The higher pitched parts of my voice would be quieter than the lower pitched parts. And I think that would be really like bizarre sounding, you know? And so I think we'll notice that in, you know, when we're listening to familiar sounds on Mars, like the sound of wind, the sound of the rover wheels crunching on the surface, you know, I think those sounds are going to sound strange to us, but it'll be hard for us to quite put our finger on it because it's almost the same. It's almost the same. It's just that sound is propagating a little differently. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's kind of the space experience, right? Something that's just like a little off, just something a little strange and that unfamiliarity, not necessarily being a scary thing, but kind of a wonderful thing to embrace. Can I ask you shipped this off or now everybody shipped this off this summer or summer of 2020. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So we launched on July 30th. Okay. So we can do the math. Uh, we'll land on February 18th. Okay. So that's actually a pretty fast trip, right? That's like not even seven months. That's a pretty, pretty yeah. fast clip, I think. So before that, though, of course, we had to send our instrument to be integrated onto the rover at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Okay. And then JPL then had to ship the entire assembled rover to Florida where it was integrated into its launch vehicle. And then we can launch. And so it's actually a really long process that takes a lot of people, a very high priority for NASA. You know, we can only launch to Mars every 26 months to be at our closest approach. If you want to launch in an off nominal time, it's gonna cost you in terms of fuel and mass. And so that's why we only launch every approximately two years. So we really didn't wanna miss this launch window. Right. But of course, you know, COVID was a, I mean, it's still a huge issue right now and was a huge issue in July. And so it was um, very challenging to be able to keep working um, and do it safely while all meeting these, you know, really hard deadlines, right? Mars waits for no one. So you you either make that launch deadline or you don't. And so I, you know, I didn't have, you know, as a, as a scientist, you know, once that instrument left our 
our building, you know, there's nothing I could do to contribute. So I was really, I'm just so impressed and proud of our NASA colleagues for actually getting this packaged up and launched safely. It's, a, it's a really an incredible accomplishment. Were you present for the launch? I wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. I know none of us were. There were very few people who were allowed to go to the launch because of, of health and safety reasons, you know? No, so, I, I understand. But I was under the impression that, you know, COVID aside, you were planning to be there. Absolutely. I was <laughs> absolutely going to be there. I mean, instead, so it launched around 5.30 in the morning, New Mexico time. So I had my launch shirt on. I was the only person up in my house. I'm like drinking my tea. It was very, it was very weird because, you know, we, I was present for the Curiosity launch and it was such a wonderful event to share with hundreds of people, right? We were, we were at Kennedy Space Center. We were all just sitting there at the closest public viewing space and it was really wonderful, you know, but again, like I have to be grateful for the fact that we launched. Oh yeah. It sucks that I wasn't there, but I was not critical to that launch. So I was, I was cheering it on. So. Yeah, but you're part of the ride, right? A bit of your spirit is actually about to descend upon Mars. <laughs> yeah. My name, my name is engraved on the inside of our instrument. So my name is soon to be on Mars. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's really awesome. Okay, so then I guess in reverse, it took about six-ish, seven months for this machine to get, well, it's not there yet, but keep our fingers crossed, two days for a successful landing. How often are you getting this, these data readbacks? How, how quickly does the signal reach you? And how often are you kind of examining the specimens that you're so excited to examine? Well, so um, how quickly we get downlink is a product of several things. One, of course, is where Earth and Mars are in relation to each other. Yeah. So maybe I'll explain how we get data, because then you'll understand what, what the limitations are. So uh, the rovers typically do not speak directly to Earth because that would require direct line of sight between the Mars rovers and Earth. So we actually use a series of um, relays. So first we have several orbiting spacecraft around Mars that when they make a pass over the rover, the rover communicates, they send data up and, and down to each other. And so then once those orbiting spacecraft are within line of sight of the Earth, right? Yeah. Um, they will communicate with one of three telescopes that is part of the deep space network. So we have these three big telescopes. So anywhere you are in the world, you can actually communicate with, with this, uh, this network because of the way they're arranged. So then the deep space network then sends those data to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. And then from there, we have some automatic scripts that then pre-process our data and send them to us in Los Alamos. So that's, that's the journey. And so then of course, when we're doing uplink, which is sending commands to the rovers, right. we do that all in reverse. You know, we send it to JPL, JPL sends it to the Deep Space Network, anyway, and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Now we can't communicate with Mars when we're in conjunction. So that means that when Earth and Mars are on opposite sides of the sun, we, we don't have the technology to talk through the sun, unfortunately. So Nina. Um, we're working on it. But for now, what happens is we uplink a series of commands the rover can execute by herself. Uh, and then we also just take a break. Right. So it's usually about one month and that's when everyone okay. catches up on sleep and takes vacation <laughs> or just, you know, catches up on data. Right. Right. So when we fall, our typical cadence, for example, for curiosity, now that we've been operating for eight plus years, the way this works is we no longer live on Mars time, but for, for perseverance, we'll start by living on Mars time. So we'll try to start at the same time on Mars every day and that means starting 38 minutes later on Earth because the Martian day is 24 hours and 38 minutes long. So 
you just keep falling forward. So you start sometimes in the day, sometimes at night. It's pretty confusing, I think, as a terrestrial being pretty tied <laughs> yeah. to the diurnal cycle of this planet. Yeah. So, so we'll be doing that with perseverance, but so the way that it would work is that you essentially come, come in for whatever your time of your shift is, and you look at the downlink data, right? So we know when the downlinks are going to occur because we know when the orbiting spacecraft are going to do their passes. Anyway, we know we can predict and we know how much data volume we're going to get. So we, we come down, we say, okay, what was our downlink? What happened yesterday? Like, is there anything that's really critical that we address? And if so, awesome. If not, then we say, what is our strategic plan that we're trying to do? We're trying to you know, do an analysis here and then start driving by this day or something. So we know what our constraints are. So we, can, we have these beautiful images that we take in our workspace around the rover. And then we, as a team decide, let's shoot that rock, you know, uh, or let's do this analysis, right? There are some analyses that take more strategic planning, but SuperCam and ChemCam are ones that can be used tactically. So we can just be like, hey, you guys want to shoot that rock? Yeah, let's do it. And then we can program it up and then uplink that for the rover to do the next day. So we don't work in real time, right? Because even at our closest approach, there's a seven minute delay okay. between signals from Earth and Mars. So the rover has to be somewhat autonomous, which is great. So, so what happens is we work and we send the rover a plan. The rover's like, thank you. I'm going to do that. You guys go to sleep. I'm going to do your plan. Um, and if we make a mistake, the rover can be like, hey, you guys messed this up. So I failed out this series of commands because they were stupid and I moved to the next one. You know, we'll get the downlink from the rover to figure out if our plan worked. And so it's sort of happening on a daily cycle. Even if mm -hmm. sometimes we get downlink a little bit more rapidly, that's the cadence that we tend to work on. And honestly, that's kind of enough because it's already exhausting enough to like <laughs> live on Mars time. So, you know, we don't need to be like joysticking this. No, that makes perfect sense. It's a pretty, so it's pretty rapid turnaround time. But I would say that for Perseverance, we have a lot of checkout activities that we need to do after landing to ensure the health of our instruments, right? And just to make sure everything's working. Also like the mast is folded down. So we have to pop the mast up because the whole thing, the whole rover is all folded up from being in its little pod for the last you know, six months. So, so we have to gradually unfurl and make sure everything's working. So that's going to be the first, you know, I would say 30 sols probably. Okay. Um, it's going to be checkouts, but we'll, we'll get some data, you know, as part of those checkouts, uh, you know, don't, don't quote me on exact days because, you know, we, we, we go day by day, right? Yeah. Sol by sol, that's the Martian day. So in terms of the strategic plan, how is it, if you have the power, how do you and your team determine which rocks you want to blow up? What do you, what motivates your decision? What are you looking for? That's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of things, right? So for example, if we're doing a campaign, right? We're like, okay, we saw in orbital data that this area is really rich in clay minerals. So we want to be able to do the following types of analyses and numbers. That's a strategic plan where we say, let's do two drills and make sure we get compositional data every some number of meters, right? So, but then day to day, how do you implement that? Well, you have people like me who look at the pictures, dial in and say, hey, you guys, I think this rock looks awesome. And here's <laughs> why. And this is why we should devote rover resources. Now, sometimes we, those decisions are made for slightly arbitrary reasons because we don't have any information. For example, one time I was like, I think we should shoot this rock because it's a really weird triangle. I don't get it. It's weird. Like, I think we should shoot it, you guys. And, you know, 
there was no other compelling thing that we had to do. And they're like, okay. And let me tell you that triangle rock was awesome. And I wrote an entire paper on it in 2016. So, you know, picking a rock for arbitrary reasons is not necessarily a bad thing when all the rocks are on Mars, right? Because you can learn something from everything. Right. You have to, you have um, discussions with your colleagues all over the world and you have to just convince them that this is the right thing to do. And it's, it's tricky, but you can do it. You know, I've, I've argued successfully for analyzing some rocks over others and I have failed sometimes too, which is fine. But I, again, I think you can't lose because everything's on Mars. So we learned right. something, everything. Did you determine something from the makeup of that triangular rock that dictated its triangular structure? I think the reason it was triangular was completely random. It just, it was um, resistant to erosion. It was a fracture fill. So it was like a vein in a rock that had been eroded out of the rock because it was softer than the vein material. And it just looked angular. I mean, it just, you know, rocks are weird. There's all kinds of weird shaped rocks out there. So it was just really, really angular because of its erosional resistance. But what was so exciting about that rock is actually, it was really rich in an element called manganese. And manganese is, well, I love this element. I could go on forever, but (laughs) manganese is a really important element for understanding environmental conditions. And it's very closely associated with life on earth. So to find, yeah, this huge (laughs) concentration of manganese on Mars was extremely unexpected and challenging to explain. And it really, I think, changed our understanding of what kind of water forming, what aqueous environments are possible on Mars, because you don't get manganese deposition except in really specific situations on Earth. And so to put that into some context, right, so manganese requires really strongly oxidizing conditions to form minerals. And so we didn't see a lot of manganese. There's a ton of water on Earth, right? But before the rise of cyanobacteria and the oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere, you know, we did not see the formation of these minerals. So manganese minerals in the terrestrial rock record are an incredibly important marker of this huge change in redox environment. Um, So to find something like that on Mars uh, is pretty exciting, right? And I don't know if we totally understand how it formed. We know that the environment had to have been much more oxidizing at that time than it is today. And so does that suggest that there was life, but might not any longer be life or post-oxygenation. So if manganese exists, but we don't find a lot of oxygenated space, or we haven't yet found a lot of water, are we post-life on Mars? Or are you more hopeful that we might be in the middle of something we just don't understand? Oh, I mean, I think we definitely don't understand. There's so much we don't understand here. Even though the possibility of past life on Mars, that, that's an option that is raised by these observations. That is a really huge statement that requires bigger proof, right? We oh yeah. We have that proof. So while it remains an important avenue of exploration, you know, it may not be that, right? What it tells me at the very least, though, that there had to have been a lot of water. There had to have been, you know, strongly oxidizing conditions somehow, and it had to have persisted over a long period of time. So the, the lake that we were, you know, the lake area in Gale Crater, which is the Curiosity's landing site, that was a place that would have been habitable by terrestrial standards. Now, was it inhabited? I don't know. And maybe the manganese is telling us that. So another avenue of research that I am exploring is trying to understand what kind of biosignatures are preserved in manganese minerals that are formed by microbes. Because if we could find mineralogical or chemical signatures that we could 
say, you know, detect with our rover instruments, that would really help us find select samples that are of interest for trying to, you know, untangle this question, was there life on Mars at right. one point in time? And that's one of the main goals, actually, of the Perseverance rover is to find evidence of biosignatures and then to bring some of those biosignatures back. We're going to cache samples for a future return to Earth and a different mission. But that's a really important question to ask. So I'm hoping that we'll, we'll find more manganese in the new landing site, Jezero Crater, and then maybe we can bring some of that back to Earth for uh, analysis in our terrestrial laboratories. Um, would that be a, a, a manned mission that returns the cache? Please, crewed mission, because ladies would like to go as well. Thank you. That was a much needed correction. Okay, a crewed mission would be the ones that capture these no caches and bring back. So in fact, no, this would still be a robotic mission, okay. right? So as we are planning to send people to Mars in the future, this sample return mission is actually going to happen sooner than that. Cool. Um, so right now it's not funded. So it's sort of up near, nothing's real until there's money. But the idea would be that we would start launching the vehicles that would bring back these samples sometime in the mid 2020s with the goal of returning samples in the early 2030s. You know, that sounds far, but that's not that far. You know, it's within (laughs) the next 10 years. So I I feel like that's going to just fly by. So it's actually something that's going to happen, you know, on our, in our lifetimes. Right. So And that is going to change everything we know, I think, about Mars rocks, because right now we only have data that we've gathered from remote sensing instruments on the surface and meteorites that just fell onto Earth. Right. So we don't know where those Martian meteorites came from. We know that they're from Mars for a lot of reasons, but we only have about 150 Mars rocks to have studied in our laboratories. And while our rovers are amazing, they're amazing they still can't do all the analyses that we would do with a rock that we have here on earth, because on earth, we have every possible technique. We can make measurements and then redo those measurements. There's so many things that we do to understand materials that we just can't do remotely. So that's why the sample return mission, I think is going to be hugely paradigm shifting for Mars science. Yeah. You can't really make the measurements on Mars reproducible if you're destroying the samples in order to glean information. Well, and then you drive away and you never go back, right? right. Like <laughs> my little triangle rock, which is named Steven, little Steven. Steven, we shot Steven up quite a bit, had a lot of measurements, but then we drove away and we are literally never going back. And also we'll probably never find it again because it's the size of a U.S. penny. It's a tiny little rock, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, normally you would just step on a rock like that and just ignore it, you know, if you were hiking on Mars. So, um, you know, that that is just the, that's the downside, right, of these missions where, you know, you, once you leave a sample, it's gone. Right. And that's it. You have, you have the data that you have. And you yeah. have to figure it out or not, right? You only get one shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one laser shot. Oh, there was one rock that was so cool, like right at the beginning of the mission. And like, we just didn't look at the data fast enough. And they were like, oh, there's like, that was the first high manganese that we saw. It was just like totally a drive-by shooting, right? We're just like, oh, shoot that rock and keep going. And then like, I was like, oh my God, can we go back? And they're like, no, we're not going back. Uh-huh. So, so caribou, the rock caribou will always be a mystery. We'll have the pictures, we'll have some chemistry, but that's it. Yeah. Well, it's just funny to me too, that the way that you more or less decide when you, when you're not already working on a, a more strategic mission, let's say the way that you decide what you're going to shoot up is like destroying your favorites. Like that thing's really cute and interesting. Let's get rid of it. Let's totally obliterate it so that we can learn about it. It's a, uh, oh, it's bittersweet. 
I mean, I always say that if we found extant life on Mars, we would definitely kill it. I mean, it's not going <laughs> to survive being vaporized by our laser, but um, I will tell you what it's made out of. Um, yeah. For what it's worth, you know. Yeah, what is it worth? <laughs> I mean, but you're so right, of course. Sorry, Martians will try not to kill you. Yeah, we just yeah, need to kill I mean, one think, of you. If you're all identical, we just need to kill one of you. <laughs> just one, right, just one. Yeah. You know, people do actually do laboratory libs on individual microbes. They don't typically do it at like a distance of 23 feet because that would be crazy. Usually it's like up close, but you yeah. can actually do some, you can find out information about, you know, living microbes as you, as you zap them. But yeah. that's not really what we're designed to do at all. No. Um, and, and so, and I think the chances of extant microbes, just to be fair, you know, on the surface of Mars is very low. It's just because the surface environment is incredibly hostile to life as we understand it. It's not so much the dryness or the, the cold, it's actually the radiation environment. Mars doesn't have a protective magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And so um, the surface radiation environment is a lot harsher. And that's the thing that tends to get, you know, life forms. That's what destroys our our elemental building blocks, right? right. We have to repair our DNA um, to be able to continue to function. And so that's the tricky thing. That being said, of course, I think there are microbes that live on earth that would probably be fine on the surface of Mars. Like life is very tenacious. Right. And there are a lot of extremophile examples we have here on earth, but of course we are, we're pretty fragile and we're spoiled and we, we like our creature comforts. Can I, can I switch to a more speculative question? Yeah. Do you suspect based on what you've already seen or what you hope to see from the ChemCam and the SuperCam, do you expect that there's a possibility to terraform Mars for human life? Or do you think it's domes? Do you think it's closed environments? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's like, first of all, let's assume like infinite resources, right? Because this would be- Right, it doesn't exist if there's not money, as you already said. Okay, so right. infinite resources. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's see, the, thing, the first thing is, I think we need to really, before we just even talk about terraforming, I think we really need to figure out if there is or was indigenous Martian life. We do not want to go there and just cover up traces with our own life, even if we can. I just think that is a really critical, almost philosophical question. Is totally. there life elsewhere? And, it, and, you know, Mars has all the raw ingredients. So I think before we ever do anything, we really need to be sure there are not Martians. It's a hard question to prove the absence of something, but I don't think that we've really explored all the options, right? We've, we've barely literally scratched the surface. So I would really, I would, I would hesitate to advocate for terraforming Mars or making okay. any attempt prior to that. So that being said, let's say we say, okay, you know, life did not arise on Mars as far as we can tell, right? And we haven't seen any evidence for that. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, there are a lot of potential technological issues that will make it hard to maintain, you know, the cushy kind of atmosphere that we're used to here on earth. You know, it would just require us to like constantly be renewing the atmosphere because Mars is a smaller planet, has lower gravity. So it can't hold on to some of these lighter elements as easily. And it doesn't have that magnetic field. And so incoming radiation will destroy a lot of your molecules that, that you want in your atmosphere and you'll lose it to space. So it's something that it's a, a constant battle, right? You're going to have to constantly be making huge volumes. I haven't done the calculations, but you know, it's not that it's impossible, but it's a lot. It's a big, it's a big thing, but fine. You know, you could, you could do that. The thing that you can't get away from is that the radiation environment is really hard to deal with. It's hard to deal with shielding. You know, we will greatly increase our chances of getting cancer if we want to live on the surface of Mars. And so I think what's more likely than even terraforming or domes is that we're going to live underground 
for the most part and only top up for when we need to do things or want to go on a sightseeing tour, you know, something like that. Most of what we're going to do, our living space would be subterranean because that's the only place where we could really deal with the the surface radiation environment. And so people have suggested, you know, there's ready-made caverns, right? We know that there are caves on Mars. We know that there are lava tubes, certainly. And so those are ready-made little habitats for us if we wanted to start. So I would say we put our solar panels up, put our infrastructure that's loud or something that needs to be at the surface, put that up there. And then the rest of our stuff, we're just going to be underground. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) I mean, I know that's not as exciting, right? Like it would be way nicer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't even know. I'm not, I'm not the most adventurous exploratory person myself. So like, I'm not sure that I would volunteer, even if I am alive to do the subterranean thing. Would you, you've done the, the kind of scary extreme lifestyle. Do you, would you do the subterranean Martian lifestyle? Oh, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think conceptually, yes. Okay. Um, I feel like I really love earth also. And I yes. have, there's a lot of people and things that I love about earth. And I think it would be hard for me to say goodbye to all of that permanently. That being said, I would certainly volunteer for, you know, a long duration uh, mission to Mars, given a reasonable chance of return with an actual return date, you know, Right, exactly. Uh, the, you know, the opportunity to, to walk, you know, along the rover's traverse. Oh my God, that would be the greatest gift, right? I could be like, I remember that outcrop. Like, you know, I kind of feel <laughs> I like I'm looking at space. Yeah, exactly. Look, <laughs> look at my little holes. They're there. Like, there they are, you know? Yeah. So I think, I mean, to have the opportunity to be in another world would be outstanding. I just, I think I don't want to, just as I didn't, I don't want to move to Antarctica permanently. It's a beautiful, wild place, but it just wants to kill me. And so does Mars, you know, at the end of the day. So I think I would want to return. There are people, I think, who don't feel that way. You know, maybe they will be the first actual Martians, you know. Right. Um, but for me, you know, I, I, I think I love this planet and everything that it gives me so much. So I don't want to leave it forever. Yeah. I definitely think earth rules, but you're braver than I to even like get off surface to, to enter into anything that's non-Terran is, is exciting to me, but you, so you're a brave person and you have the experience and the metal you've already proven it in Antarctica. Okay. So if I may, given that we're talking about the possibility of living on another planet, I'm going to shift to the, to the science fiction element of this podcast. And I'm going to ask you the alien crash site question. Although yeah. based on our conversation yesterday, I have a suspicion I might know what you want to find, but you tell us, okay, at the risk of great injury, imprisonment and even death. What object would you hope to discover in an alien crash site and why? So at the risk of breaking the rules, I'm gonna list two things that I wanna look for. Okay, you're a true stalker. You, you have no care for the law. You're going in the zone, nope. you're getting as much as you can. All right, let's I go. I am a subject matter expert. I don't know why they would keep me out of this, you know? That's right. You probably work for the Institute that's doing all the examining, which means that you get all the equipment that keeps you safe. <laughs> I mean, like, it's fine. Well, we don't know what the hazards are. Like, well, so the first thing that I'd want to know, is this a crude or uncrewed alien craft, right? You know, um, because if they sent themselves, then I think actually finding biological matter would be hugely fascinating just to be like, what would another life form that did not develop on earth look like? And how similar or different is it from terrestrial life? I mean, that's incredibly important, but then Regardless, so let's say it was an uncrewed craft, right? It was just one of their scouting missions. (laughs) 
I actually would try to find their either software or firmware. Like I want to understand, right? What is that craft trying to accomplish? Because that gives you an insight into the intelligence behind it, right? What is the motivation? And then how do they think about that? And so when you look at a computer is fine, but it's just a piece of hardware you can't do anything with, it's the instructions that I think would be so critical. Um, and so, you know, and maybe there's no onboard computer with like a centralized OS or something like that, which is the case, you know, they would have something like firmware, right? For, for whatever their, I assume, electronic-like devices are. But I, that's, if we did not have an opportunity to study their physical bodies, I want to know, I want to get into their minds, because obviously these are, these are creatures that had intentions and they had goals, and I want to know what those are. And I think the best way to do that is to study the instructions of their craft. So I, I'd be greedy. I'm going to try to get both of those things. That, okay. So when we, when we spoke yesterday and you said, how seriously do we mean object? I was like, oh, she wants a specimen. She wants a genome. <laughs> but um, okay. So now let's talk about the actual interpretation of whatever this software firmware might be. H- how would you even begin to go about trying to interpret what they're up to? I mean, you have a sense. I think you essentially caused an alien crash site when Perseverance lands. It's like an Earth alien crash with this like very sophisticated hardware. It's like covered in tools. So you have a sense. How, how would you go about trying to evaluate what's going on? Well, I might, I'll just preface this by saying that this is not my area of expertise. And I would absolutely bring in people who are better at this because I'm a, I'm a rock jock, right? I study rocks. <laughs> Um, so, and I don't try to figure out what a mysterious entity is thinking. There are, there are jobs that entail trying to understand the functionality of unknown hardware, right? This is, there are people who do that on earth. What would you do with a human artifact to try to figure that out? You can apply all of those same tools, you know, to the, to an alien artifact, right? To understand, first of all, you know, you can look very basically at how, like what happens when you do this, when you give this input that input, what happens, you know, you can, you can look at that, the hardware level and you can see what it starts doing and where you start moving your information. I think you start at a fundamental level and then try to piece together that story of what in aggregate do these instructions mean. Okay. Um, but again, I am not the expert for, for this particular project. Yeah. Well, there are experts uh, that exist who are not me. And I would probably be like, Hey, Hey, figure this out. It's, it's not a bad idea to build like a perfectly equipped team to evaluate this, right? Exactly. I'm not sure if the perfect person is something like a computer scientist or something like an archaeologist, but I do imagine that if there's a physical object that you're taking out of the zone, you could employ your skill set to figure out, I don't know, something about the context from which it came, and maybe that might inform a little bit of what's going on. I mean, once we start talking about actual aliens, like I I, I joke that I'm the subject matter expert, but actually I'm not, right? Like I don't know anything about aliens and neither does anyone else, right? We don't know anything about them. I think that my contribution to this project would be to actually obtain the object. And then I would pass it off to people who do this. I mean, again, like this is something, this is a whole field of study on earth to be able to do, you know, understand unknown hardware. And Mm -hmm. so- those folks tend to be electrical engineers. And I think where I might dip back in is if there was a connection to an environment that I had some expertise in, right? Or if the goal of this alien spacecraft was to study the geology of earth, that'd be awesome. I'm like, I'm gonna come back in, let me help you out. Like what is of interest to them? And can we infer something about their home environment from the things that they're interested in? I think you could certainly, if you, you know, if an alien were to like, tap into our 
um, software and try to understand us from our rover, they'd be like, man, these, these creatures are really obsessed with water. Like really obsessed with themselves, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, it's sort of the nature. I mean, I guess I don't know anything about other life, but like, of course we want to understand the universe in the context as it relates to us. Right. Maybe that's just, I say it's natural, but I feel like that's a, that's very human. And I don't know. It seems to me like an alien, you know, the other aliens might be the same, right? They start with exploration from a context of how does the world and the universe relate to them. But who knows? Maybe they're, maybe they're way past that and they don't care anymore. I, I don't know. Like we yeah. have no idea, right? So we'd have to know what they came here for and why. Are they going to send more? Like, what, what is this? Is this a one-off? Like, <laughs> right. Was this an accident? Because we, we, so we've sent crafts to Mars that have failed, right? That have crashed. And we spent a lot of time looking for them in orbital data to be like, where did they, where did it go? Like, right. And there's actually, I don't think we found every single one. We haven't found all of our crash sites, right. But we tried to find them. So, you know, I would say if we found an alien crash site also, I don't think that the chances are low that that's the last we're ever going to hear. Like they sent that here for a reason. And they'll want to figure out what happened to their hardware. There's some alien scientist nerd who's like, we got to figure this out. You guys, they're not going to just like, oh, well, I guess that failed. <laughs> on like, to the next. Yeah. Different planet. Especially Let's if see. there were actual a crew on there. Like NASA would never be like, I guess they're dead. Who cares? Right. <laughs> right. Or if you, if you expect that this thing, you know, lands on earth in pursuit of whatever it's in pursuit of, what would it find? Life forms, like obviously living things. So I think they'd be like, hmm, let's figure out where that thing went and what we can glean. Right. Yeah, right. And is it still communicating, right? I mean, you could always, you know, there's so much if you have access to hardware. I just figure if you're, if you're going really fast and like grabbing one thing, but you know, you can also figure out, is it, is it broadcasting still and radio frequency or something else? You know, there's all, cause we would, uh, we would put in some kind of a transmitter and hopefully one that would be robust to a crash. That's a thing we would do. So we could think in the same ways as, you know, I don't think it, in many ways we have to think about practicalities like we would, right? Aliens are bound by the same kind of rule. Like they, they would have the same concerns, I assume, with their craft, I mean, not just with right. each other. What precautions do they take to ensure that it has a safe landing in two days, right? Same right, right, right. You know, like, and, and how do they do that? They probably have to do it remotely. There has to be some autonomy built in, you know? Right. So those are all questions that I think we can, we can t apply from our knowledge of, of being a spacefaring people. We can apply that to this alien crash site. Okay. And so <laughs> what it is for you is you're volunteering your adventurism and your courage to capture the item. <laughs> You'll go back. You'll just continue to collect the specimens, but you're giving them away to a team that could do the work. And I think that's really um, bold <laughs> and necessary because I don't think a lot of people would choose to do that. I think if anyone found it, they'd want to keep it or understand it for themselves with whatever tools they possess, but you are generous. It's a waste to leave something with me if I can't, if I don't have the the knowledge and the tools to actually come up with an answer, what good does it do for me to have what is essentially just junk on my mantle, right? Like it's, it does nothing for me. It does nothing for our world. I would, I would want to be updated on the status if yeah. possible, but even if not, like, you know, I feel like it does more good, not with me than it does keeping something for myself. It's sort of like, so when I went to recover meteorites in Antarctica. Okay. Thank um, you. It was like, I have a meteorite on my desk. Am I a horrible person? <laughs> well, so no. So, okay. So meteorites, there's no hard and fast rules about meteorites. 
So if you find one as a private citizen, like in your backyard, it does belong to you. But I went as uh, funded by NASA to, to Antarctica to search for meteorites. And because it's a publicly funded project, those aren't mine. I go there to do the science, but I don't go there to get souvenirs. And in right. fact, it's illegal to do that. And everyone's like, oh, but you totally, you took like one little one, right? You did. It's like, but what would be the purpose? It would have to be a secret meteorite that I could never show anyone or tell anyone about because I had stolen it. And then we would never actually get to do any analyses on it. So then we don't learn anything. So it becomes, it could be anything. It doesn't matter that it's a meteorite. It's nothing out of context. And I just think it would be selfish. And so I did not, for the record, take a meteorite because it just would be pointless to do that. Um, Now, that being said, you can purchase meteorites. And so it's not bad to have a meteorite. I, I do think that it's important, you know, if you have a really special meteorite, definitely don't just keep that whole thing on your desk, give a slice of it to some scientists who can actually use it to better, further understanding of our mm-hmm. solar system. And that's actually what most of the meteorite collectors, the big ones do, um, because it, it helps them, right? Because they can work with scientists who can confirm that these are really important rocks. It increases the value of their collectible, but the scientists actually get the knowledge, right? And then the collector can actually get the credibility. That's right. No, I think that this was a gift, but I believe that it was procured in the proper, through via the proper channels. It's like some giant meteorite lands and then whomever finds it, they break it up and the distribution allows one for the scientific evaluation of it, if it's given that way and two for commercial distribution as well. And what is it? Do you have, do you have any, Um, like, no, it's in my office. And I think it's like, I think it's named after Goethe. Are you familiar? Um, Goetheite. (laughs) Goetheite is a type of an iron oxide. Okay. So, so it is a mineral name. So I don't know. Usually, so meteorites are typically named after uh, the closest populated area where they fell. Okay. So, for example, a very famous meteorite, Allende, named after Allende in Mexico. So, like, there is a, a whole family of Martian meteorites called Shurgatites, named after Shurgati in, in India. So, and that was where, like, we first, you know, it was, a, it was a grouping of meteorites that we realized were very similar and finally figured out were from, from Mars. So, huh. yeah, so the names, the names typically have to do with, you know, the, the location and I nothing see. to do with their composition. Yeah. So then, unfortunately, um, my desk is at my office, which is closed because uh, complex system yeah. science research isn't an essential business. So when oh. I'm next returned, I'll be sure to read, I'll, I'll get the placard because Lucy also gave me all the information. And perhaps the, the Gertite is just, as you say, a nod to the composition, not necessarily a nod to where it was found. But again, I don't think that she stole it or kept it from scientists. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm sure she did not. Oh my gosh. You can absolutely buy meteorites. I am in no way <laughs> impugning you or her. Yeah. I'm sure that that was totally fine. I have I have a meteorite, not from Antarctica, but like, no problem. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for venturing into this kind of strange interview, I imagine, compared to the ones that you're doing across all of your hours in the next few days. But I really appreciate you taking the time to thoroughly think through what you would find if you encountered on our planet something like what you're creating on Mars. I love that uh, perspective. Thank you. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to think about this. I love thought experiments like that. Because I feel like that's where tomorrow's actual projects, you know, we, we do thought experiments today to prepare for the unknown future. And so I, I love this. I think this is like super fun and who knows, right? Why, why wouldn't we find an alien crash site someday? We'll right, exactly. I'm not ruling it out. I'm just being um, maybe a little preemptive. <laughs> yeah, no, we're going to be ready. 
Yeah. This is going to be really important documentation for when that happens. So. Right. And when it happens and we're not quite sure what the like physical parameters or what the behavior of the space is, we're going to call you because you're brave enough to run in and do the work. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for the next 48 hours for you, for everyone else who has something at stake, but I'm very exciting. Very proud of you. Very proud oh, of, of, of NASA and JPL and everyone involved, Los Alamos National Labs, of course. I'm really excited to see what happens in the next two days. And then again, everything that happens in the next six years. Right. I agree. We've got a whole bunch of things. We're just at the beginning, but yeah, we just got to make it to the surface. So I I feel good, but yep. We'll all be watching remotely seven minutes after it happens. That reminds me, I maybe noticed that you're doing some panel discussions or something like that at the time of the landing. Should we share that with our audience in case they want to tune in? Sure. Yeah. So we're not doing it at the landing. I'll be just probably freaking out incoherently, but so the evening of landing at 6 p.m., the Bradbury Science Museum is hosting a live uh, WebEx panel of Los Alamos scientists who are involved in various aspects of the, uh, the SuperCam mission and actually really the, the entire rover. So, so it'll be from 6 to 7, okay. and uh, you'll be able to ask your questions of us. And of course, by then, we'll know where we are and what happened. So <laughs> right. fingers crossed. Yes, totally. Know, it might be a... Yeah, I, I assume it will be a very joyful WebEx and not a sad one. Yes, I, oh, I'm fully expecting greatness and, and success. Um, so, <laughs> so I'll link that in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen. Uh, this airs on the 18th. So tonight at 6 p.m., you can listen in on this. Crack your champagne and enjoy. Hey. Sweet. Well, thank you, Nina. Yeah, thank you, Kaylin. This has been great. Have a great first 30 souls. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I think it's yeah. going to be great. Yeah, we just, not a lot of sleep, but that's okay. It's worth okay. it. It's it's your new baby. Exactly. Cool. See you later. Bye, Bye. Nina. And so there we have it. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing and you want to help us produce more content like this, please consider visiting the Santa Fe Institute website and giving a small gift of any size. They're very, very useful, and we are so grateful for the support. You can do so at santafe.edu forward slash give. And if you'd like to watch the original video of this interview, you can do so at aliencrashsite.org. And I will see you in two weeks when I interview Tamara Vanderdoes along with our Complexity podcast host, Michael Garfield, for a strange but awesome crossover episode of Complexity Pod and Alien Crash Site. So stay tuned and stay safe until our next venture.